Okay, well, let's dig in. We are in a new, uh, well, it was a new series two weeks ago. We're three weeks into a series uh, called Big Questions, Big Answers, and we're dealing with some very difficult questions, I guess you could say, for some in regards to the faith. Um, these are questions um, that some of them, not all of them, but some of them are questions that are kind of used by skeptics um, to kind of push back from Christianity a little bit. Um, and so this week, we're dealing with the question, how could a good God allow evil and suffering? Um, if you ever wondered that, um, if God is so good and God is so great and God is all-powerful, why is it that there is so much evil and so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and make it all go away since he's God? And some people use this as a way to kind of push back on Christianity. And, and digging into these questions, one of the things I want us to see and learn is that when you ask questions and you ask hard questions of the Bible, um, the Bible doesn't fall apart and God doesn't run away. Um, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't run away from these questions. In fact, of, of all the questions, this is the one questions that, question that I think we're going to see today that God actually leans into. Um, he, he leans into this question. He's okay with us asking this question. And the Bible is just riddled with information uh, on this question. But at the same time, um, all of our answers are all, not always in a nice, neat little bow that we would like for them to be in. And some things we do have to walk by faith we're going to see today. So, But this is a common question and understandable because the world is full of so much evil and so much suffering. And, it, and basically the, the thought behind this question from the skeptic is this. If God's really God, that means He must be all-powerful. And your Bible tells you He's omnipotent, He's all-powerful. And if God's really good, that means not only is He all-powerful, but He wants to do good to people. But then we look around and there's evil and there's suffering in the world. There's hurricanes and there's tsunamis and there's cancer and there's death and there's murders and there's horrible things, atrocities that people commit against humanity and there's natural disasters, all sorts of evils, right? And so there's these, these natural evils, these natural disasters, and then there's these things, these sins people commit. And there's just all sorts of things that we suffer in this life. And none of us would, would say that that's certainly not true that those things happen. But the skeptic says, well, if God's good and he's God, then obviously he would put an end of all that. So either the God of the Bible doesn't exist because he's not all-powerful, or he's not really good. Maybe he gets a kick out of all this. And that's kind of the, the philosophical question that's been posed for years and, and, and really not one that, that many philosophers would tell you today, as I've read, would, would even say holds a lot of weight. But there's kind of an emotional component to it. Because there's, it's, it's not just a philosophical question, it's, it's somewhat of an emotional question of people ask, how can I believe in a God like that, that let this happen or that let that happen? And so it's a very um, personal, kind of emotional kind of question and people look at illnesses like alzheimer's that my granddad suffered from he died with and they think is it how can there with something like that in the world why would god allow something like that to go on uh, we look at in our state where you go through seasons hurricane seasons and we see some of the things that happen with that i remember in 19 uh, 19 uh what was it mid 80s i was i was small enough to barely remember it being a little 1980 toyota corolla uh, trying to leave the coast from being on vacation to escape a hurricane that was headed towards the coast. And in 1980, Toyota Corolla is not what you want to be in um, uh, going home for that. But we, we, I mean, it just seems like every year there's some sort of natural disaster. I remember when I was 12 years old, my parents coming to pick me up at my dad's parents' house to let me know that my granddad had succumbed to cancer and, and heart disease and, and all the things that had been ailing him the last several years and him passing away. I, and we all have our stories, right? 
of things, people we've watched suffer, difficulties, painful things we've personally been through. I remember as a teenager, 16-year-old classmate and friend who, playing at the ballpark, reached out and for no reason whatsoever grabbed a hold of a light pole and playing baseball with some small children, and little did anybody know that it wasn't grounded and thousands of volts of electricity killed him on the spot. Um, we ask, why do these things happen? And these things are shocking, and these things are appalling to us, and these things are really kind of makes the world we live in a little bit scary at times, if we got real honest. And the truth is, we've all got these stories of things that we've suffered, or we've watched people suffer, evil that we've seen committed against us or against someone else. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, that we've been quoting from the last few weeks, says that evil and suffering in the world is not actually evidence against God. It might actually be evidence for God. I'm going to read to you a quote from the book. I'm going to read to you a couple of those today. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have a good reason for allowing it to continue that you can't know. He goes on to point out that it actually might be a proof for the existence of God, all the evil and suffering. And you would say, how can that be? Well, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a skeptic, a uh, great uh, author. Um, you know him for Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, things like that. Screw tape letters. Uh, before he came to Christ, he was a skeptic. And his biggest pushback against Christianity was the evil and suffering in the world. And this is what C.S. Lewis said about that after becoming a Christian. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. It goes on to say that when we go in the water, we feel wet. <laughs> but a fish doesn't feel wet when it goes in water. Right? But there's some, we, there's, we, we sense and understand that the world is not as it should be. We have this sense of justice and of right and wrong and of morality and all these things. And that is because God has stamped these things in our heart and on our conscience. And a look at the scriptures reveals to us that God has actually a lot to say about evil and suffering in the world. As I said at the beginning, he doesn't lean away from this question, he leans into it. And what I want us to see this morning is that we can be confident in the midst of a world full of evil and full of suffering that God is both sovereign, he is God, he is all-powerful, and at the same time good. And a great picture of this is seen in Genesis chapter 50 in a familiar story. So if you have your Bible, we're in Genesis chapter 50, the very last chapter of the first book of the Bible. And we're in verses 15 through 21. I'm going to read this passage to you and uh, kind of set it up. And then we're going to kind of do a little rewind and come back through. So uh, this is about a guy named Joseph, a very familiar character for many in the Bible. Um, Joseph, um, was uh, he was kind of pulling a little bit of a Job before, jo you know, before we, we find out about Job, right, as we get over in the book of Job. When we think about suffering in the Bible, we think about Job. Uh, there's, we think of this this person that went through incredible difficulty, incredible pain, a lot there. And but when you get to Genesis, you get to the very first book of the Bible, you also see that there were people suffering during that time. And one guy who went through a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain in his life was one of the sons of Jacob, who changed his name, God changed his name, to Israel, uh, who, from where we get the 12 tribes of Israel, right, the nation of Israel. And Joseph was a guy who had suffered. And so, in Genesis 50, where we're about to read from, he is at the end of his life, and at the end of his suffering, and uh, it's before, sometime before he passes away, and after the death of his father Jacob. And this is what the Bible says, starting in verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus be comforted. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers had committed a horrible sin against Joseph and they were thinking the only reason that Joseph had not killed them (laughs) or locked them in prison for what they had done for them was that good old dad was still around. And they thought, sure enough, now that good old dad has passed away, he's going to have it out for us. Now, it's been 17 years. I'm going to walk you back through their story. They were separated. Just a little uh, prequel here if you're not familiar with the story. They were separated for many years, about 22 years probably. And now it's been 17 years since they've been reconciled and Joseph has told them he's forgiven them. And so for 17 years, while their dad continued to live, they walked around with this weight on their back that at some point dad was going to die and Joseph was going to go Batman on them, right? And just go, you know, vengeance. He was going to, you know, it was going to be bad. And that's kind of what they had in their mind. And then Joseph confirms to them, listen, I've forgiven you. We're going to see here in a minute. He'd already forgiven them. You're forgiven. And then makes this incredible statement. Am I in the place of God? He says, I've learned something over these many years. I'm not God and I'm not going to pretend to be God. So I'm not going to be the one that executes vengeance on you. I've forgiven you. And then he says this powerful verse in uh, Romans 50, 20. Kind of our key verse this morning. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why would that happen? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. In this verse, you have a Joseph acknowledging that evil was done and that it was done against him, so he suffered. Somebody committed evil. Somebody suffered. And that while they were meaning it for evil at the same time, not sometime later, God meant it for good and accomplished something good from it. All that in one verse. And you see this unfold in Joseph's life and throughout the Bible. So let's back up a little bit and get the story to kind of set the stage of why Joseph would come to this place. When you start in Joseph's story, it's in Genesis 37. That's where we're introduced to Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's on the screen for you. Verses 2 through 4, Genesis 37 says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So Joseph is the favorite. He's the favorite. His mom was the favorite wife and Joseph was the favorite son. And he even made a pretty little coat to to symbolize that he was the favorite. And Joseph here is a tattletale. Well, we don't know exactly what happened, but he goes and he gives a bad report of something his brothers had done and get, kind of gets them in trouble. And they hate him. You're already the favorite, and now you're getting us in trouble. And then the Bible tells us that a little bit later, Joseph has a dream. And he has a couple of dreams, actually. In one dream, um, these sheaves, these sheaves of wheat are bowing down that belong to him, or, bow, or excuse me, that belong to his brothers are bowing down to his sheaves of wheat. And then he has this other dream where the sun, moon, and stars, the constellations are bowing down to him. And one thing to have that dream it's another thing to share that dream and so he goes to his brothers who hate his guts and he tells them and his dad about the dream and they think you arrogant little punk you know you think we're going to worship you even his dad's like what in the world why you you know come on 
And so his brothers are looking for a way to do him in. And they, one day when, he's, when they're out working and he comes to catch up with them, they plot against him to kill him. But one brother steps in and says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him down in this pit. And so they throw him down in this pit, this big hole. And the one brother was going to come back with the idea that he would come back and rescue him and take him back to his dad. But while he was away, the other brothers saw some slave traders come through and they sold him into slavery. 17 years old. And all he's done at this point is probably share information he shouldn't share and probably be, and been the favorite and been a little bit of a tattletale. Not really exactly deserving of being sold into slavery, I would say. In Genesis 39, we see that he's a faithful worker. Uh, he gets sold to a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a ruler and a leader underneath Pharaoh. He's kind of one of his right-hand men. He's kind of over, over some uh, an officer of the guard, they call him. And the Bible says in Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so God begins to bless Joseph because God is with Joseph and God is still working in Joseph's life. Even though his brothers have kind of cast him off, God's still with him. And he prospers him up to the point that he becomes this kind of over the whole house. He's the head guy kind of underneath um, the the guy he works for uh, that he's a slave to. But the bad thing is, is that Potiphar's wife turns out to be a not very nice lady. And she decides she would like to have an affair with this, uh, this young strapping man. And so she begins to try to seduce him. And Joseph resists and resists. And she finally gets him alone one day in the house and kind of makes her last effort. And Joseph just runs out of the house and leaves his garment behind, leaves his shirt or his jacket or whatever behind and just takes off running. And she accuses him of being the aggressor and basically has him falsely accused and her husband has him locked in prison for what, he do, what he's done. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 39 and 40 with Joseph. Is he's now not only been a slave, been th- betrayed by his brother, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, worked his way up from that, but now he's in prison and he's in prison for 13 years. That's one time we, when we read these stories, we, we miss the time gaps. 13 years that he's in jail, he's in prison. And the Bible says in verse 21 of Genesis 39, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so once again, Joseph begins to rise. And he kind of gets over the prison now, right? Everywhere, everything he touches, right? He's going through all this difficulty, but God's blessing him in the midst of it. And his life's very fruitful in the midst of all this. And he gets this opportunity to interpret a couple of dreams. God sent him to interpret dreams. As you remember from his teenage years, he had some dreams. And a couple of guys have a couple of dreams, and Joseph interprets them for them. And one guy, his dream's not going to end too well. He's going to die, and Joseph just tells him, you're going to die. The other guy, though, his dream's good news for him. And he tells him, now, when you get out of here, you're getting out. And when you get out and you get an opportunity to go in front of Pharaoh, you make sure you remember him. Tell him I interpreted this dream, and I'm innocent, and I've been falsely accused, and I've been in prison all these years, and, and I shouldn't be in prison all these years. And the guy gets out, and he forgets about all about Joseph. And so now it's not bad enough that he's in prison. He's just forgotten about even after he'd done something good for somebody. But then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. Has a couple of dreams. And he needs somebody to interpret them. And the cupbearer, the guy that, that Joseph had um, interpreted the dream for, all of a sudden, aha, remembers Joseph. And so they go get Joseph out of prison and he interprets the dream. And the dream is basically that there's this big abundance coming upon the land, seven years, and then seven years of bad famine. And so Joseph says, this is what's going to happen. And what you need to do, he begins to institute a plan, is you need to save in the years of plenty so you'll have enough in the years of little. 
And Pharaoh says, this guy's genius. You know what? You're so smart. I'm going to put you over this whole project. And ultimately, Joseph ends up being exalted to the position of, you know, we would think of him as vice president. He was the right-hand man to the most powerful person probably at that time in the world. The little 17-year-old boy in a pit left for dead and sold into slavery is now the right-hand man to the most powerful guy in the world. And he ends up orchestrating the plan, God using him to save thousands and thousands, if not millions of lives when this famine comes because they've prepared properly. But not only that, saving the lives of his family because the famine hits them too, so Egypt's the only place with food. So here comes his brothers looking for food in Egypt. And little do they know that Joseph's the one they're talking to trying to get food from, right? And so after some time and after he after some back and forth where Joseph tests them and does some things, he finally reveals himself, himself to his brothers in Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now you've got to remember, this is 22 years later. So they didn't recognize him. He was 17 uh, when, this, when, the, when this happened. So what is he like? He's, he's pushing 40. He's 30, 39. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So God used him to save his family. And, and we're going to come back to this, that key word there, remnant on earth. And then verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So when you get to Genesis 50, many, many years even after this, right? Some 17 years later, and Joseph is reminding his brothers, I've forgiven you, God was in this. You can kind of understand what's going on here and, and how Joseph gets to this place of wisdom and humility in verse 20 of chapter 50 where we, left, where, where we started this morning. Because Joseph sees God hand, God's hand in all this. Because Joseph understood something. You know, when you, we get, that's the end of Genesis, right? The, the life of Joseph is kind of the back story, the end of Genesis. The beginning of Genesis is the fall of man. And Joseph, uh, being a follower of the God of Abraham, was, was, was well aware of the sinfulness of humanity and the fall of man in the garden. And so he would have had a worldview that he would have understood that everything in life is not always roses and and gumdrops and, and fairy dust and, and things like that. Bad things happen. And, and he would have understood that when we look at the Bible, the story that we see is not why do bad things happen to good people. What we find out is ultimately we're all kind of bad people. And what I mean by that is we're all spiritually dead and sinful and evil in the eyes of God. We've all rebelled against God. And it's really more of a wonder, and we're, it's more, more of a wonder that anything good's happening to us at all. And so Joseph, he understood that this is a fallen and broken world because of sin. That's what you have to understand as we, as we look at the Bible, as we look at pain, and we look at suffering, we look at evil, we have to look at it through the lens of the fall and understanding the world is not as God originally created it. The world is broken. The world is messed up. Bad things do happen. And we brought that, we ushered that into the world with our sin. And so that's why the world is, that's everything bad that we see and experience in this world is not directly connected to your personal sin, but it's connected to this, the sin of humanity, the fact that sin came into the world. You can trace it all back to the garden. And so Joseph would have understood that. But, so we live in a sinful and a fallen world. So here's the thing. Why do, how do we make sense of it? 
How, how do we walk by faith? And how do we make sense of the goodness of God, the suffering, the evil, all these things? How do we make sense of it? And from Joseph's life, I want to give you four things to kind of hold on to in these moments. that kind of help not always answer these questions like we want them answered, but it kind of at least give us peace in the midst of the storms. Number one, we see from Joseph's life that God is with his people when they suffer. I read to you a couple of verses there. In slavery, he was in prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Wherever he was at, when he was a slave, when he was in prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph. That is kind of the theme of Joseph's life. No matter where he went, no matter how bad he got, God was with him. Joseph was away from his father and his family, like I said, at least 22 years. He missed birthdays, celebrations, milestones. A mere teenager when sold into Potiphar, Potiphar's uh, house. I imagine it was lonely at times. Suffering can feel lonely. Evil can make you feel alone in the world. can isolate you. However, God was with Joseph. And we understand from the biblical narrative that we find throughout the Bible that God is always with His people. God gives us more than trite words in His suffering and encouraging little bumper stickers and things to write down on a post-it note and put on the fridge. He gives us Himself. And that's ultimately, as a believer this morning, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you actually have the Holy Spirit given to you to comfort you and to strengthen you. And God's presence not only comforts us and gives us peace, it, it makes us fruitful even in the midst of suffering. He makes us fruitful even in the midst of suffering. In Genesis 41, 50 through 52, it'll be on the screen up there for you. Listen to what Joseph, in the midst of all this famine, as Joseph's a ruler now, he has a couple of sons. And it says, before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, before them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Excuse me, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Names were a big deal in the Old Testament. And Joseph looks... At his life, and he thinks, "What can I? I've been through so much. What can I name my children?" And he basically names them something meaning God has not forgot me, and God has made me fruitful. <laughs> this is a guy that suffered a lot. See, one of the truths we need to hold on to is, like Joseph, even in suffering, God can make us fruitful because God's with us, and He's working in us to bear fruit. We never really know what God is going to do in us and through us and through our suffering. You know, one of the ways that the Bible teaches that God is with us is to comfort us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, that God, the God of all comfort, comforts us. And it says one of the reasons He comforts us is so that when others suffer, we can comfort them with the comfort with which, we, which we've been comforted with. So one, at least one of the reasons we suffer is so that we can comfort others when they suffer. That's at least one of the reasons the Bible tells us. Because what we need to understand is, even in the craziness, God can use us and God work, can work through us precisely because God is with us. See, if you don't know Christ this morning, if you're a little bit skeptical about the, skeptical about the Bible, nothing is more lonely or scary than suffering, and I get that. Nothing is more intimidating than a world full of evil. But only the God of the Bible can give you the resources needed to deal with all the world's going to throw at you. All, all the things, all the difficulties, all the pains of life. And only what He gives you can stand the weight of eternity because He gives you Himself. He gives you His presence. The second thing we learn from Joseph's life is not only is God with us when we suffer, if you're a child of God, God uses all things for His glory and the good of His people. God uses all things for His glory and the good of His people. Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 20, God meant it for good to bring it about that many lives would be saved. 
See, the Bible is clear that God works to accomplish His purposes. And Joseph even sees it in what he's went through. That even acts of evil and suffering can be used to accomplish God's purposes because God is always in control. Always. He's always in control. Remember Job? We talked about him at the beginning. I mentioned Job. Everybody talks about Job. Satan, if you read the beginning of Job, Satan comes before God and he says, I've been roaming the earth. He's just looking for someone to just devour. And, and God says to Job, he says, if you can, excuse me, to, to Satan, he says, if you considered my servant Job, Satan did not come to God and say, let me at Job. God said, have you met Job? And Satan says, let me at him, right? And God says, here's what you can't do. And then Satan goes and begins to just destroy Job's life. He loses his children. He loses his health. He loses his prosperity. He loses everything. He's just left in a hash heap. And Job begins to still worship and praise. You get to the end of the book, and Job basically says, in the midst of all this, I've seen God. I've, I've encountered God. And, you, and, and that's ultimately the, the, the big theme of Job's life and Job's book, is that when you see all this suffering and all this myth, God is faithful and gracious to Job, and God is still worthy to be worshipped. And, and God gives Job more. He doesn't just give him a nice, clean little answer at the end of the book. If you've never read Job, you're not going to find this nice, little, clean little answer at the end of the book. What God does is He gives Himself to Job. He reveals Himself to in a way that Job has never understood. But what we need to understand is that God is always sovereign and even Satan himself is on a leash. He's on a leash. He couldn't do anything to Job that God didn't allow. Because God is sovereign over everything and everyone in every circumstance. The Bible is also clear that God never sins and He never does, he never does evil. He can't sin. 1 John 1, 1.5, James 1.3, the Bible is very clear. God doesn't sin. God doesn't commit evil. The Bible's also very clear. God is sovereign over everything and every circumstance and everything that ever happens. And Joseph is saying, at the same time that my brothers were working evil for me, and he doesn't let them off the hook. He says, what you did was evil. He's not, you know, pie in the sky here like, oh, it wasn't that bad. He's like, it was evil. But at the same time you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He's not saying, listen, guys, God came in at the last minute. He swooped in and he made something of this horrible mess. He says, no, at the same time you were working for evil, God was working for good. Sometimes I think we get it in our head. It's kind of like, you know, the, the dad that's home alone. This, this always happens in movies, right? The, the mom goes out to, to do something, whatever, the, and goes away or whatever, and the dad's home with the kids this time, and, you know, and it's, this only happens in movies. It doesn't happen in real life, my life, or anything like that. And, you know, he's got this list of things that he's going to do while she's away, and, and, and then he looks at the clock, you know, and all of a sudden he looks around the house and he realizes everything's a mess, and dishes are everywhere, diapers are everywhere, there's, ra- there's just random furniture in wrong place, everything's a wreck, and he's not done any of his list. But all of a sudden, in the last 10 minutes, he come, turns into like super husband, and he gets everything accomplished, you know. You know, cleans it all up, stuffs it in the closet, whatever. And so that when she walks in, it's kind of like, oh, it's man, you you really can manage this without me here. You did 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 a good job, right? Um, and sometimes I think we think that's kind of how God manages the suffering and the evil. Is that at the last minute, when we least expect it, He's going to kind of pull this thing together, kind of okay. Like that God's up there, kind of wringing His hands, thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? with this world and he's panicked and then in the last 10 minutes he's going to pull it off but that's not the case at all God has a plan and his plan is not and will not be thwarted he is sovereign over the whole mess that's going on we see in this world 
God is always in control. He's always in control and working to accomplish His purposes. And this will ultimately be for His glory and it will ultimately be for the good of His people. Here's another verse for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It's on the screen. In Him, in Christ, we have an, we have an obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now, how many things is God working according to the counsel of His will? It says He's working all things. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He is ultimately, we're find, going to find out, that God is doing everything ultimately for His glory and ultimately it's going to be for our good. Did you notice that phrase there though? All things. It also appears in Romans 8.28. Very f- popular verse. Nice coffee cup kind of verse, right? Let me read it to you. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's what we call God's unbreaking chain of redemption. You can't lose the deal because you didn't start the deal in the first place. But here he says at the beginning there in verse 28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together. Not some things, not most things. Not God's going to pull this together at the end. But all things, are they work together for good for those who love God. This is not some trite little formula, right? This is not something to, to just kind of tritely give to somebody. Right, you know, you know, this, this is probably not the, the, the card to slip somebody at the funeral. By the way, even good verses can kind of be used in a careless way. But it's truth. And it's not necessarily, you know, suffering is kind of one of those things, as, as one person I read this week said, not one of those things to dig into and read a bunch of books on suffering when you're suffering. <laughs> not depression. You need this rich storage unit, reservoir, of information and knowledge of God and His Word so that when the suffering comes, you're, you've got this to draw on. Right? Like a camel packing water in its back. You're, you're ready, right, for the desert. And so we have to be careful the way we use verses like these. Because suffering is emotional. But that does not change the fact that these verses are true. And that for those who love God, He does work all things to work for the good of His children. Ultimately, God is making His people more and more like Christ. And one day, we will be completely transformed and your suffering and your pain and nothing you go through will be wasted. I firmly believe that. Not a single drop will be wasted. If you're skeptic and the idea of a God that is always in control and uses all things to bring about His purposes freaks you out, try thinking about a God not being in control or just not being a God. Imagine a world where it's hopeless and where the end is ultimately meaningless or a world with a God who's not all-powerful. He's just got nice intentions. Is that really better? D.A. Carson says in his book, How Long, O Lord? Quote, To abandon belief in the omnipotence of God may solve the problem of evil, but the cost is enormous. The resulting God is incapable of helping us. He may be able to give us quite a bit of sympathy and even groan along with us, but He clearly cannot help us. Not now and not in the future. There is no point praying to such a God and asking for His help. He is already doing the best He can, poor chap. 
But he has reached the end of his resources. That's the God who's good, but not all-powerful. But the Bible gives us a God who is all-powerful and who is good. A lot of what happens is mysterious, and we have to walk by faith in this life. Sometimes we don't see completely and understand until, until glory. We're not promised that it's all going to make sense in this life. You're, you're just not promised that. Our stories don't all end like Joseph's, where we can clearly see everything, and it all makes perfect sense, and there's the puzzle, and I can put it together. Okay, I'm good with that. It doesn't always end like that. For some of us, it's not going to be to the end. When we're in a new heaven and a new earth, But I do believe there's coming a day where it's going to make sense. And the third thing, that brings us to the third thing that we need to hold on to, and that is that God's perspective is clear and ours is limited. Notice what Joseph said before the famous verse 20 there that we read in chapter 50. In verse 19 he said, Am I in the place of God? Joseph was put in a position where if he wanted to, he could have destroyed his brothers with his power. He could have had payback for what they did, but he understood he's not God and it's not his place to enact vengeance. He simply forgave and trusted the Lord. For Joseph, his perspective became increasingly clear with age and with wisdom and experience and seeing God's plan unfold. And sometimes that does happen in this life. Some of you can attest to looking back at things and junk you went through in your life and you can actually think of ways that God used it in your life. Some 20, 30 years later. 40, 50 years later. Sometimes we do get those glimpses. And Joseph got that. His perspective got a little more clear. But in general, our perspective is very limited. We can't see the future. And we can't even remember the past very well. And we don't know everything that's going on in the present. And we can only see what's going on in our life and our sphere of influence. While at the same time, God sees everything, past, present, and future, all at the same time, and every single person on the face of the planet. He's got unlimited perspective. And Joseph, came as he grew and became more mature, he came to the place to understand that he wasn't God. It takes humility to understand that. And wisdom comes from walking with God like Joseph did for decades. The sufferings of this life are painful. But we've got to choose to walk by faith that God sees what we don't and God understands what we don't. God knows exactly what He's doing. He sees the big picture. Author Randy Alcorn tells the story of being a kid and going into the kitchen and seeing there his mom had laid out all the stuff to bake a cake. And there is um, a raw egg and there's flour and maybe vanilla ex- extract and uh, sugar and, and maybe it's chocolate cake. So maybe there's some raw cocoa there and all those sort of things. And he goes by and he said he tasted every ingredient. Because he was curious. The raw egg. You know, people go crazy today if you eat raw egg, right? The raw egg, the, the, the bitter cocoa probably, the flour. And he talked about just how horrible most of it tasted by itself. And Alcorn made the point, that's how we need to understand suffering. That the experiences we go through and the things we suffer in this world, they're bitter. And just sitting there looking at them by themselves, it's a, not anything anybody would want. But in the end, you know, when his mom comes, comes in and she mixes that stuff all together and she bakes that cake and she pulls it out, it's good because cake's awesome, Right? I mean, who doesn't like cake? Unless you're a pie person, which I'm a pie person too. You know, I like them both. You know, some people are pie person, cake people. You know, I, you know, it's all good. It was all good in the end. When he goes in there and he sees the ingredients out and he tastes them all, he thinks, what's mom thinking? Right? But in the end, mom seems like a genius. And I'm telling you, there's coming a day when we're going to stand in front of God as the children of God, as the people of God, and be... And sin's going to be done away with. And evil's going to be done away with. And we're no longer going to be thinking about how yucky that raw egg tasted. Because we're going to be eating cake. 
And that's the way we have to understand suffering in this world. That, yeah, left to itself, it's kind of a mess. But in the end, God is doing something in His perspective. And God, He already sees it. Just like that mom already knew what she was doing. And she already had a plan. And she already had... God's, as it's been said, God's got this thing rigged. He's got the whole thing rigged. Right now, we do not have perfect perspective. Our perspective is limited. But God's perspective is perfect. And I think for Joseph, when he was tossed into a bottom of a pit by his hateful brothers, I don't think he was sitting there thinking, I know exactly what God's got planned. No, he was angry. and I'm, I'm sure he was. And when he got sold into slavery, he probably thought, if I could get my hands around my brother's necks, I would just break them. And then when that woman accused him of something he didn't do and he ended up in prison, he thought, oh my God. I mean, I don't... When he's in the prison and he's in jail and he's in the bottom of a pit, I don't think Joseph's sitting there going, God's got this thing all figured. I know exactly what God's going to do. Now, he probably was walking by faith, but he didn't know. But I think at the end, when he saw what God did and saw how it saved his family and ultimately preserved the promises that God had given Abraham to make them a nation, I think he understood. And as we see, he was, he was at peace. If you're not a Christian, you have at least to be willing to admit, I believe, this morning. Even if you're a skeptic, that we don't know everything. That we can't possibly know every possible reason or ramification for something happening in this life. And that our perspective is limited and only God's could be perfect or could be clear. We have to at least be able to agree on that this morning. And if that's the case, it's possible that there are reasons things happen that we can't possibly know because we don't know everything. The fourth thing we need to hold on to, maybe the most important, or it is the most important. God has suffered and will end all suffering and all evil. In verse 20 of chapter 50, Joseph said God had saved many lives through what had happened to him. But we read in chapter 45, he said more. He said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God was protecting and preserving his people. This was what was going to be the nation of Israel was coming from Joseph and his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. And God was needing to protect them and to preserve them. And God did protect them and preserve them. God used Joseph's sufferings to put him in a position to be able to save not only many lives, but ultimately what we know today is the Messianic line. Not long after they, he saves the family and they're all reunited, before he dies, Jacob or, or Israel pulls his 12 sons around and he begins to bless them and to prophesy over them. And one son's name is Judah. And he says to him in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Sounds like something that's meant for Joseph. We're just being honest. But he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He goes on. The obedience of the peoples. He's prophesying the Davidic kingdom, because David would come. But he's prophesying something bigger than that because he says the scepter's never going to depart from Judah. And he's prophesying who the New Testament reveals to be Jesus, who he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you see the Lion reference? You see Judah here, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy given to Judah. The Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus. Because Joseph suffered, Judah lived. And because Judah lived, Jesus came through that trial. Joseph's story is a clear pointer for us to Jesus. Joseph himself, his life mirrors the life of Christ in many ways. It's striking. Joseph was the favored son of his father and was sent by him to his brothers. But his brothers hated him and rejected him and plotted against him and betrayed him. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Joseph suffered, but then he was exalted. Joseph's suffering was used to bring about the saving of many lives. Does any of this sound familiar? It's because the story of Joseph is meant to point us to Christ. Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God and lives in perfect communion with God, the beloved Son of God who lives in perfect communion for all of eternity with the Trinity, is sent into the world. The Word becomes flesh, takes on human flesh. He's hated by His own people, rejected by His brothers. He's plotted against. He's betrayed. He's falsely accused. He's crucified. He's risen from the dead and given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord. And God used the suffering of Jesus to save many lives. Many lives. And Joseph's life. And Judah's life, and Jacob's life, and Abraham's life, and Moses' life, and my life, and your life. Think about this. The most evil thing that has ever been done in the world, the history of the world, if the Bible be true, is the murder of Jesus. Most evil thing that's ever been done. So how can that be the most evil thing? He's the only completely sinless, innocent person ever lived. He's God. And we murdered him. The only person to never sin. The very Son of God died a brutal, horrible, unjust death. Brutally murdered. The most incredible suffering that's ever been experienced was by Jesus. Why? Because He took the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Even sinners in hell are only bearing the wrath of God for their own sin. Jesus took all of our sins and took all the wrath of God for everybody. And not only that, He did it from a position of, of losing a relationship that had been eternal. A relationship with the Father of love and of trust for all of eternity. And then as He's on the cross and His darkness comes out on the earth and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us has any clue what that's like. We don't have a relationship that goes back that far. He suffered an unbearable amount. No human being that's not God could suffer that. But Jesus did. The most evil act and the most intense suffering ever endured was endured by Jesus, which means it was endured by God. God understands your suffering because God has suffered in Christ. This was always God's plan. God ordained it. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God didn't, at the end, oh, they're killing him. We better figure this thing out. I got a plan. We'll make it mean something. No, it was, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever breathed life into Adam and Eve, he knew that he would send his son and he would die. He knew it was always the plan. Jesus was not plan B or plan C or a makeup on the end. He was plan A. It's plan A. Acts 4, 27, 28. 
For truly in this city, as they pray, they're praying this, the disciples are. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against you. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God's hand, and your plan, God's plan, had predestined to take place. God used the greatest evil and the most intense suffering ever to bring about the greatest good in the history of the world. Don't miss the beauty of the cross applied to your suffering. God has suffered so he can end suffering. And we can be confident that God will accomplish His purposes for His glory and for our good because He's shown it in the cross. Because God the Son suffered, we know He understands, but we also know that suffering's going to end and the evil's going to end. Jesus suffered and died, but the Bible also says that He rose from the dead. Tim Keller says in his book that the position of the Bible is that of resurrection, right? We believe in resurrection. He writes, every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken or lost. Love this quote from John Piper. I've read a lot of quotes this morning. Bear with me. The ultimate purpose of the universe is to display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God. The highest, clearest, surest display of that glory is in the suffering of the best person in the universe for millions of undeserving sinners. Therefore, the ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering in Himself to overcome our suffering and bring about the praise of the glory of the grace of God. I couldn't have said it better myself, so I didn't. If you're not a Christian today, God is not afraid of your questions. And He's not running from them. He's leaning into them because He suffered. Jesus had a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked that question because He was suffering for you. He was bearing the wrath of God for you. He was bearing the separation that you deserve, that I deserve. And God's not unconcerned with suffering. He came and suffered and died so that He could deliver sinners from their sin and one day end suffering and evil forever. Why would we try to write off a God like that? Why would we try to explain Him away? Only the good news of Jesus adequately explains and gives hope to the suffering in the world. Everything else is hollow. If you hate suffering and you hate evil, you shouldn't be in the business of doubting God. You should be in the business of actually believing the gospel because only in it promises the end of all these things and that there's a purpose and that there's a plan. Even if we don't understand it fully. And we don't. It's mysterious. If you're a child of God today, God is with us when we suffer. He uses all things for His glory and for the good of His people. Everything. Even things we don't understand and we don't understand in this life and we won't fully understand in this life. We just have to walk by faith. God's perspective is clear, even when ours isn't. And because He suffered, the cross is our proof that one day... It's all going to make sense and it's all going to come to an end because if God can use the greatest evil and suffering that's ever been to bring about the greatest good in the history of the world, then He can work in it through your life too and in it through my life too.